I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and this is Great Lakes Lore. How's it going tonight? Pretty well. I can see the sun. There is still sunlight outside. It's marvelous. <laughs> it is, but the trade-off is that when I get up to, or when I leave the house to go to work in the morning, it is dark again, and it's dark for that last time taking the dog out. So going to work in the dark morning is sucky. <laughs> that is that is the trade-off. Um, waiting for the school bus in the morning is, you know, it was getting brighter, and it's like, oh yeah, spring is here, it's getting bright, and then oh gosh, it's back to struggling to get the household moving. And the deer, the deer are more, you know, they're moving around a lot more in the morning on my drive too. So You know what I have on on my drive when I drive? A family of wild turkeys that just hangs Ooh, out fun. in the middle of the road, which I mean, they're adorable, but um I'm just really worried somebody's going to hit them. There was the other day from my office window at work, a little like bachelor crew <laughs> of like four adolescent male turkeys strutted by. And um, they had like, cause they only had like tiny little, little like couple inch long beards on their chests. So they oh. must've just been, they're like, you know, four bros out looking for ladies or something. <laughs> it's March, which means that, just yesterday was an event in Detroit, Michigan, on or near one of the Great Lakes, that is partially the topic of what we're going to be talking about, and that is a little creature called the Nain Rouge, although everybody says Nain. So we're probably going to slip up and say Nain at some point, especially me, since I never took French. Samantha, you <laughs> took French. I suppose I can hold you to a higher standard, but I probably won't. <laughs> I plan on using a good French pronunciation the first time I say like any good French name, and, th and then it'll just be the way we say things here in Michigan. <laughs> so, <laughs> But mm -hmm. the Nain Rouge, and he is a interesting creature with an interesting history and an even more interesting manufactured history in some ways, <laughs> as we're going to see. So let's go ahead and get started talking about the Nain Rouge. Yeah. So we're first going to start off with some information about the settling of Michigan, because it's important to orient ourselves to early Great Lakes history here. So the French were the first European settlers in Michigan. They arrived in North America in the first half of the 16th century, and they moved up the St. Lawrence River. In 1534, Jacques Cartier sailed up the river and took possession of New France, or Nouvelle France, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> they attempted to make a colony at Quebec, and although the first colony failed, the fur trade that began there with the indigenous peoples of the region prompted further exploration inland, and eventually this brought the French to the Great Lakes and Michigan. And we should say that that fur trade um, mostly at first, um, it was beaver pelts. Um, they were using the beaver for hats in a lot of cases, but it was it was the beaver pelt that was that was making the the French settling um, worth all of the time and the money and the effort. <laughs> <laughs> so the city of Detroit began as Fort Pontchartrain du Détroit, if you will. <laughs> so <laughs> well done. Thank you. Uh, Détroit meant the straits. So if you look at a map, you will see that there is a very 
narrow piece of water between um, the U.S. and Canada right there. So that's why it it got that name. Um, And it was founded in 1701 by Antoine Lomé de la Motte Cadillac, or Cadillac, which is how I will continue to say it. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And Cadillac had been a commander at Fort Michilimackinac, but convinced the crown of the importance of setting up a post further to the south and closer to the advancing British forces. So he was like, hey, I'm up here uh, at in Mackinac, what is today Mackinac City. And if you listen to our Mackinac Island episode, you will um, you will know some of this history. But he thought we need to we need to move further south in Michigan. So let's set up. Um, a fort down there. So he established it uh, with permission from King Louis XIV as a fur trading post. And he led the fort until 1710 when his enemies called for his removal and he was sent to the new colony of Louisiana. That did not go so well for him either, though. And he was recalled to France and he was briefly imprisoned in the Bastille. So Aaron... Why why was he in the Bastille anyways? Well, he was he was an interesting <laughs> character. Uh interesting character, which is kind of a nice way to say things. In 1687, at the time of his first marriage, he accepted the name Lamotte Cadillac as a <laughs> That was a, a false... great like smash up of I I, I, <laughs> I keep wanting to say Lamoth Cadillac. And I know <laughs> that, that sounds spelled. <laughs> so he he gets this false claim to nobility. Uh he was just a guy named Antoine Lamay before Lamay, is that a good way to say I it? I would say that, yeah. Okay. And do you know he, what that reminds me of a lot? Um Heath Ledger in a knight's tale, like oh, yeah. making up the royal lineage. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You you've you've got to you've got to make yourself sir something of somewhere if you're gonna get anywhere in mm-hmm. um in, in that kind of <laughs> that kind of aristocratic world. So he's I mean, if you want to say he's an ambitious social climber who is willing to take <laughs> risks to make that happen, you can. If you want to say he's a fraud, I think that's <laughs> another way to say it. Um, usually, you can get away with that better if you're super successful and brilliant and everybody thinks you're indispensable. But that's not necessarily mm-hmm. the case. His leadership tactics were sometimes questionable. While at uh, Michilimackinac, he was known to sell alcohol to the indigenous people, and he was also known for treating fur traders poorly and finding ways to fill his own coffers at their expense. So he's he's making enemies. You don't rip off the fur traders. <laughs> it's not a good idea. And furthermore, he began Fort Pontchartrain with roughly 100 individuals there, and he reported back on the prosperity of the settlement. But those reports were contradicted by another report in 1708 that said the settlement only had 62 residents outside the fort and that Cadillac was disliked for his abuses of power. (laughs) Someone tattled on him. (laughs) So now that you know just enough about the settling of Michigan, the founding of Detroit and Cadillac himself, let's jump to the first time we find the story of the Nain Rouge. And we're actually going to have to jump ahead many centuries. So Marie Carolyn Watson Hamlin, we'll probably just call her Hamlin for the rest yeah. of this. Best, best thing to do. <laughs> um, related the story in her books, Legends of Les Détois. Um, the book was published in 1883, but a shorter, less detailed version of her Nain Rouge accounts was serialized in the Detroit Free Press a few years earlier in 1881. 
And it was just credited to the someone with the um, initials MCWH. These were the earliest published accounts, published accounts of the Nain Rouge story and is the basis for pretty much every retelling that we have found. Right, Aaron? <laughs> right. Not that these retellings would always be perfectly faithful, but mm-hmm. you can trace all the elements back to mm-hmm. this story. So here is the story. Hamlin subtitles her her chapter on the Nain Rouge as a legend of the founding of Detroit. So it's it's a bigger story than just this creature, but he sort of pops up (laughs) periodically throughout it. So she goes into the origins of things with the collection of Frenchmen there at the site of what would be Fort Pontchartrain and later Detroit. There's a big dinner party, which I always wonder, what does a dinner party at a not yet founded fort look like? (laughs) Thank you. I I wondered this as well because there's there's nothing here. And no, no. This like. is presented as as a dinner party. It's not yes. just um around everybody sitting crisscross applesauce on the ground around the campfire, some. right? While right. you know part of a deer rotates on a yes. stick. No, this is something else. So Hamlin claims there's this dinner party, anyways, and. Um, As entertainment, there is, quote, an old fortune teller, and she is described thus. So strange, so bizarre was her appearance that a murmur of surprise greeted her. A woman of unusual height, a dark, swarthy complexion, restless, glittering eyes, strangely fashioned garments, yet in harmony with her face. It's great. <laughs> um, Hamlin gives her the name Mère Minique, and it's Mère, M-E-R-E, which means mother in French. La Saucière, so the sorceress. She had a scrawny black cat perched on her shoulder. She read the palms of all those present, and the dinner party members marveled at the accuracy of her insight into their lives. So then she gets to Cadillac, and Cadillac doesn't care about the past. He wants to know the future. Mermenique pours a silver liquid like mercury into a bowl, a brazen bowl in the story it's described. She predicts that he will soon undertake a dangerous journey and that he will found a great city which will one day have more inhabitants than New France now possesses. She also tells him that many children will nestle around his fireside. He asks her to continue and she sort of pauses and says, oh, I wish you hadn't asked me to go on. (laughs) Because that was the good news. Here's the bad news. And these are her words. The policy you intend pursuing in selling liquor to the savages, contrary to the advice of the Jesuits, will cause you much trouble and be the cause of your ruin. In years to come, your colony will be the scene of strife and bloodshed. The Indians will be treacherous. The hated English will struggle for its possession. But under a new flag, it will reach a height of prosperity which you never in your wildest dreams pictured. You will bask in a sunnier climate, but France will claim your last sigh. (laughs) And he did die in France. He did. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, It's like she knew history. And it's it's like a new flag. It's almost like she imagined the United States. And by she, Uh, we're talking about Hamlin, not not the sorceress. (laughs) Right. Well, Hamlin's (laughs) conception of the sorceress. Yes, yes. So Cadillac then asks if his children will inherit his possessions, and she tells him that his and his children's future is in his own hands, but she has some instructions for him. Appease the Nain Rouge. Beware of offending him. Should you be thus unfortunate, not a vestige of your inheritance will be given to your heirs. 
your name will be scarcely known in the city you founded. In a footnote in the text, Hamlin explains what the Nain Rouge is. The Nain Rouge was the demon of the strait, and in the old traditions is described as most malignant if offended, but capable of being appeased by flattery. So everyone at the party is impressed by all of this. Everyone, that is, except Cadillac, naturally. (laughs) Later, he told his wife about the whole thing, seemingly blowing it off, but his wife took it very seriously. Hamlin goes on to explain the process by which the site for the fort was established. So she gets back to her, you know, the founding of Detroit stuff, which is what this chapter was about. Uh, So she talks about the fort being established in July of 1701. Hamlin claims that this proved part of the fortune teller's prediction since Detroit was founded and its prospects for a successful colony bright. I don't know how you would know at that point (laughs) that that its prospects are bright, but that's what she said. Hamlin then goes into more early Detroit stuff for a few pages, but gets back to the Nain Rouge material with a mention from Cadillac's wife who was concerned that people had seen the Nain Rouge. So murmurs were starting to to circulate and, and the wife was scared. Cadillac not concerned. He doesn't really seem like he would bother himself with something like that, even when he was confronted with the creature shortly after. So Hamlin wrote, suddenly across their path, trotting along the beach, advanced the uncouth figure of a dwarf, very red in the face with a bright glistening eye. Instead of burning, it froze. Instead of possessing depth, emitted a cold gleam like the reflection from a polished surface, bewildering and dazzling all who came within its focus. A grinning mouth displaying sharp pointed teeth completed the strange face. Cadillac is irritated by this thing's appearance, and he hits the Nain Rouge with his cane and shouts, Get out of my way, you red imp! With a fiendish mocking laugh, the being vanished into thin air. And I can just picture this, like, slowly he just, like, fades with, like, this yeah. laughter in the back. I don't know. I just have a really cool picture of that happening in my and, mind. And, and <laughs> Cadillac's wife having this this look of dread on her face. You moron. Yes. Ugh. Yes. He didn't do anything yet. You just beat him for no reason. Cadillac, though, had offended the Nain Rouge, and that never turns out well. Hamlin then relates the sad, ignominious end to Cadillac's career. She explains that the Nain Rouge, the demon of the city of the Straits, would appear whenever there was impending evil. It was cited during the Battle of Bloody Run, a disaster for the British during Pontiac's Rebellion of 1763. It was there in 1805 when fire ravaged the city, and in 1812 when General Hull surrendered Detroit to the British. She claims it has not been seen since then, but the story, quote, lingers among the old inhabitants who wonder if he will ever reappear to give the signal of a warning. So she's got this whole story with this thing and it's tied up with the founding of Detroit and she sounds very authoritative. But who is she? What is her background? (laughs) She was born in 1850. And was descended from some of the earliest French families to live in Detroit. So she's from that French Canadian, um, French Canadian background. There's an article about her on the website of the Detroit Historical Society in their, I think they call it Detroitopedia, is, is what they call it. Mm-hmm. And they they list the families she was descended from on her mother's side, which is why her name doesn't sound particularly French Canadian. So the French Canadian (laughs) part was on her mother's side. And in 1878, Hamlin spoke to the Pioneer Society of Detroit. And in her talk, which was about old French traditions in Detroit, not about the Nain Rouge or anything. So she explained in this talk where her information came from. She said, 
The incidents, like little waifs, had drifted down the current of the past into our family history. I have gathered them, for time, with its bird-like rapidity, will soon sweep along with its wings these souvenirs of the courteous, generous Canadians who came to colonize our beautiful city. These glimpses into their domestic life become more valuable as our knowledge of their manners and customs is limited. It is to be regretted that we are indebted to the pen of the Englishman for the few written records that we possess. They came as conquerors with but little sympathetic feeling for the vanquished, nor just comprehensiveness of the character of the gay, pleasure-loving Canadian. She doesn't have strong feelings, does she? (laughs) Yeah, the French never conquered anything, did they? They had a better relationship with the natives than the English did, but just a glaring sort of anti-English blind spot in her in her telling of of this. So while this talk wasn't related directly to her telling of the Nain Rouge legend, it reflects her reliance on unnamed oral sources rather than written ones. And she talks about the lack of, of written sources. And so, so we, we know that, that she's collecting these tales that have drifted down like waifs on the current of history. And it's, it's one of the ways I think there are some differences between collecting folklore and doing history from written records. And she really relied on these stories. It's very like grim fairy tales and stuff. When things aren't written, you need to find, find what people were saying and no, we can't verify it the same way. So then the story of the Nain Rouge was picked up by other folklore collectors, including Charles Montgomery Skinner, who wrote about it in Myths and Legends of Our Own Land, published in 1896. So just roughly 10 or so years after, uh, after Hamlin. We encountered Skinner um, and some of his stories in our Mackinac Island episode. And and so at least Aaron, he's the one who's dove into his work um, for both of those. Um, but but he's going to be pals with Skinner by by the time we quit this podcast. So. We're, we're, me, and, me and Skinner are frenemies <laughs> at, at this point. Um, so he relates the basic Nainru story from Hamlin, but omits the fortune teller prelude. He also connects some other folk stories of the region to the Nain Rouge. One of them involves a brother and sister on Presqu'île, Jean and Josette. The basic story is that Josette and her brother owned half of the mill on the island. One day she fell sick and her brother Jean was pestering her about who she was going to leave her share of the mill to. She gets irritated and refuses to ever leave him her half of the mill and says she would rather the devil take it than her brother Jean. Later on during the night of her death, lightning struck the mill, setting it on fire. According to the story, the devil's laugh could be heard as the mill burned. Skinner, in his retelling of the story, replaces the generic devil with the Nain Rouge. As with most of his stories, Skinner doesn't give any indication of who he collected these tales from. He doesn't mention Hamlin, for instance. Um, So dude's not giving her credit um, for for her story about the Nain Rouge and just just adds the story onto it. So, yeah, (laughs) interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And the, the Jean and Josette story, that's just one of several stories that had that exist in folklore that have nothing to do with the Nain Rouge that Skinner just kind of sticks the Nain Rouge into. But that isn't the only place the Nain Rouge shows up. He shows up a lot in that first two or three decades after Hamlin publishes her book. There's a novel called A Daughter of New France with some account of the gallant Sieur Cadillac and his colony on the Detroit, written by Mary Catherine Crowley. It was published in 1901, and it relates the story basically as Hamlin presented it. In that same year, 
a woman named Henrietta Henrietta Dana Skinner, no relation to Charles Montgomery Skinner, as far as I can tell, wrote a novel called Heart and Soul, which takes place in mid-19th century um, Detroit and contains a few brief mentions of the Nain Rouge, mostly to illustrate sort of the supposed superstitions of the French descended inhabitants of the Detroit area. It's like, and they believe in a little goblin that runs around, <laughs> um, things like that. But, but as it was usual, really just Dobby the house elf. Yeah, I, I, I <laughs> assume Harry that's Potter a thing. Harry Potter reference. <laughs> I don't understand. As with usual, um, these, these tellings are, are carbon copies of the stories promulgated by Hamlin and Skinner. Now, the Detroit Free Press, as we mentioned earlier, featured the account from Hamlin in an earlier serialized version. And this was, what we could, from what we could find, the first newspaper mention of the Nain Rouge. There were subsequently some mentions here or there. There was a December 1892 article, an interesting illustrated article on the early days of the metropolis of Michigan. And it literally just name drops our impish pal and mentions that he had Cadillac's fate in his hands doesn't expand further than that. It kind of assumes you know about it. On July 22nd, 1928, there was an article that asked, do legendary ghosts still haunt Detroit? <laughs> Story adds no new information. June 1940, if you like ghosts, Detroit has plenty. Merely mentions the Nain Rouge. Doesn't even say anything about the story. But it does have the story of Jean and Josette's mill, but doesn't connect it to the Nain Rouge at all. Thank goodness. And so then there's nothing in, in the, the free press until 1991 when the Detroit Historical Society puts on a play about the Nain Rouge for Halloween, which I really, really would like to see. Yes. Men <laughs> yes. Mentions of the Nain Rouge would resume when the parade we mentioned at the beginning would emerge as an annual event in 2010. You know, I know the curator at the Detroit Historical Society. Oh, I think you've got to get a copy uh... of this play. I think I'll work on that. <laughs> oh, oh! if you could find me like a poster or a flyer, the studio needs that. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so in 2014, there's a book called Forgotten Tales of Michigan's Lower Peninsula by Alan Naldrit, and he mentions the name Rouge. Naldrit, however, falls into the trap of saying that the first recorded viewing of the name Rouge was in 1701, and that's not correct. 1701 is the setting, the historical setting of the story first told in the 1880s by Hamlin. She wrote a period drama, guys. <laughs> like yes. um, <laughs> that's that's how you can conceive of that. The story that Naldrit writes is basically a retelling of the Hamlin version, complete with the fortune teller, illustrated in an interesting way that um, really paints her as a stereotypical sort of European gypsy. Naldrit also incorporates Skinner's version of the Presqueille Mill fire story and talks about the 20th century sightings. One at the time of the Detroit riots in 1967 and another in 1976 when two Detroit Edison linemen saw a small creature on an electric pole. The sighting was then followed by a pretty big winter storm. 
Naldred also discusses the Nain Rouge parade, La Marche du Nain Rouge, um, which we'll talk about later in more detail. There are many other books of Midwest legends and things like that, and even some works of fiction out there that related the Hamlin Skinner version of the story. But this basically is, is how this whole story developed. Um, we get um, Hamlin writing in the 1880s, and from there, things just sort of continue, and we get sort of this established history of this creature. So now that we've got the history down, um, we're going to take our midway break and we're going to talk a little bit about what the Nain Rouge could be and also dive more into the parade that we've mentioned. Next time, it's the Great Lakes Triangle. It's like the Bermuda Triangle, but colder, colder. Fewer, fewer people go there on vacation. <laughs> well, maybe, but I was going to say, I don't know. A lot of people, I think vacation in Michigan. So that's true. You can follow us on social media, um, on Twitter and Instagram. We're Great Lakes Lore. Um, we also have our Facebook page and maybe someday I'll actually get that TikTok going. I've made two TikToks, so it's a lot of work. <laughs> But anyways, you can follow us, you can like things, you can comment at us, and we always we always appreciate the comments and questions that we get. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash chizomedia, or via the link in the show notes, or you can just Google Great Lakes Lore Patreon. That will get <laughs> you there as well. Any way you can get there is fine. And there are early episodes, there are extended versions of episodes, there are some interesting videos. There are research-oriented blog posts that we put up um, related to the episodes we do, and we really appreciate those who've joined us over there. So if that's something you're interested in, click the link. All right. So Aaron, I started reading Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman, and I am loving it. Oh, good. Um, I'm about 100 pages in, and it's just, I, I feel like you know, I did when I was like 11 or so, and I got my first book of Greek mythology. And I just would like flip through the pages reading, you know, the bios of the different gods and goddesses and, and things like that. Um, it's written very accessibly. It's right. Yeah, the stories are very accessible. Um, it's written, you know, like, like the conversations that the deities are having. It's normal normal speak, <laughs> normal modern speak. <laughs> and yeah, I can just picture them all. It's, I mean, Neil Gaiman is a rock star author anyways. I love everything I've read by him. So I'm not surprised I like it. I'm just surprised it took me so long to actually pull it off my shelf and reading it and start reading it. So my plan was going to be to look at my, I think it was the Norton Anthology of Scandinavian Folklore and Literature. And then I realized that that book is not at my house. It is at my office and I am not currently physically at my office and I uh, did not want to drive in to get it. So <laughs> I used this as an excuse to do something, to grab something else off my shelf that was similar in spirit and um, I think works out well, but a little different. And that is Seamus Haney's a Nobel laureate poet Seamus Haney's 2000 verse translation of Beowulf, Ooh. which I've had in my possession for a while, but have never gotten around to reading. And so I read that and it was amazing. It was um, 
and it's I, I love it because it's got uh it's got the the old english on one side the Ang- the old english anglo-saxon on one side and then the modern translation on the other and i'm kind of i've been trying to learn old english for a while so it's it's neat to look back and forth and really the first time i've read it then since high school and i'd forgotten how much i like it and this translation it's modern it's but it still feels like something old it's nice and it was um yeah i i really enjoyed that um i am familiar with beowulf thanks to wishbone you probably don't know what wishbone is do you no. my god <laughs> No. Wishbone? Uh, Wishbone was a PBS show when I was a kid and this little beagle um, would real, real, real people. So there was like the, the real life, his own, his master owner was a boy and um, they would be dealing with something in real life. And then Wishbone would in his mind relate it to like a piece of classic literature <laughs> and he would like be in the classic literature world. And there was a Beowulf one called Beowulf. Oh, that sounds kind of cute. Well, I mean, for a 10-year-old, I'm certainly not going to read Beowulf. Right, so, right. No, um, no. I was no. introduced to a lot of classic literature through Wishbone. <laughs> That's great. I love I love shows like that. And I love yeah. that, that whole idea. All right. Well, let's dive back into the show. Looking at this Nain Rouge creature, we, if we just sort of take for a moment and sort of accept that Hamlin did not invent the whole thing out of nowhere in the 1880s. What are the origins for this kind of story that might've contributed to the telling that she had? And so looking around, we we see there's, there's sort of European French kinds of folklore that bear some similarities and some native American folklore that bears some similarities to what we see in the Nain Rouge story. So I'm going to talk about some French stuff and Sam's going to talk about some Native American stuff and we're going to see what kind of antecedents there might be. So there's a creature called a Luton, which (laughs) is from the folklore of Normandy. And according to the Dictionary of Phrase and Fable by the magnificently named Ebenezer Cobham Brewer, (laughs) the Luton is a goblin-like creature akin to an imp or hobgoblin and is similar to house spirits found in Germany and Scandinavia. It sometimes, according to Brewer, takes the shape of a horse all saddled up and ready to ride. And it would sometimes tangle a horse's mane or a child's hair so badly that it had to be cut off. And this activity, creating these tangles, is sometimes known as fairy locks or elf locks, and it's a behavior attributed to various sinister spirits around Europe. And there's a French fairy tale, uh, Le Prince Luton. How'd I do with that one? All right. Okay. Uh, or in English, The Imp Prince, which is easier to say, which was written in 1697 by Marie-Catherine Dolnoy. And in it, she describes the powers of the Luton. You are invisible when you like it. You cross in one moment the vast space of the universe. You rise without having wings. You go through the ground without dying. You penetrate the abysses of the sea without drowning. You enter everywhere, though the windows and the doors are closed. And when you decide to, you can let yourself be seen in your natural form. The Lutan in this story activates his invisible powers by putting on a red hat with two parrot feathers in it, which is just adorable. I (laughs) love that idea. 
Now, according to Teresa Bain in her Encyclopedia of Fairies and World Folklore and Mythology, having a Luton on your farm was considered good luck, and they were apparently there to help a farmer's cattle be more productive. And they were kind to children, unless the children misbehaved, in which case the Luton would pinch and whip them. So friendly to children, but very mercurial, perhaps. (laughs) Bain also refers to the Nain Rouge as a specific Luton, which legend says haunts the coast of Normandy. And he's said to be very kind to the fishermen in Normandy, unless they disrespect him. Disrespectful fishermen get punished. Mm. Kind of like Cadillac. (laughs) This also sounds a lot like a Pukwudgie in Native American lore. And if you are listening, just stop for a moment and say the word Pukwudgie because it's the best best. word. The best word. Um, so Pukwudgies were little people from Algonquin folklore. The name actually means people of the wilderness, and their name has tribal variations throughout the Algonquin tribes. If you remember back to the Wendigo episode, Algonquin refers to a language family inside of which there are many different indigenous tribes with their own dialects and things. So the nature of these little creatures varies from tribe to tribe as well. Of interest to us here in the Great Lakes region is the Ojibwe Bagwajanini, which kind of sounds like Pukwudgie. (laughs) Um, And he is a trickster character, but one that is generally good-natured and isn't usually too dangerous. While in other stories um, from other tribes, the Pukwudgie could be good-natured but dangerous to those who treat them poorly. Very similar to the Lutin and very similar to Cadillac's encounter with the Nain Rouge. Um, so similarities between Pukwudgies and fairies have also been made, which makes sense in all of this. Pukwudgies are described as being knee-high or smaller. Now, I read this on, on this one website, and then I did find one other that said it could be a bit taller than that, too. So hobbit-sized, we can go with that, maybe. <laughs> that's that's a good yeah. unit of measure. It's Yeah, yeah. the size of a hobbit. Or smaller. And they are sometimes associated with the smell of flowers. Interesting. Random, kind of. They have magical powers that, again, vary from tribe to tribe, but they can often be found vanishing and making their appearance known at will. Very similar to the Nain Rouge story with Cadillac. They can shapeshift into animals and they have the ability to confuse people and make them forget things. Now, Henry Rose Schoolcraft, in his collection of Ojibwe stories, we mentioned Schoolcraft in our Mackinac Island episode as well. He collected a bunch of Ojibwe stories. He had married an Ojibwe woman. And so he collected these stories and translated them. And he gave, he translated the name to Pukwajanini, which is kind of a combination between the two names I've mentioned already. Um, And he translated it to mean little man of the woods that vanishes. So covers all your bases. <laughs> um, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who was inspired by Schoolcraft's writings, wrote the Song of Hiawatha, and he put Pugwudgies in his story too. So some depictions paint them as small humans, but others have them taking the form of a goblin-like creature, and sometimes they even have like porcupine quills on their back, or like a, a thick fur or quills or something like that, but they have sort of a shell of fur quills. I've said that I've said fur quills now several times, so I'm going to stop talking <laughs> and I'm going to let Aaron pick up. <laughs> I'm just imagining a sort of hedgehog type yeah. of type of uh, deal. Yeah, kind of hedgehoggy yeah. or um, kind of similar to. Did you ever watch The Village by M. Night Shyamalan? <laughs> um, yes. 
Though, I mean, obviously that had like the weird pig mouth, but it had the quills coming out of the back. So there was sort of that little similarity too. J.K. Rowling has also created this like side story to Harry Potter that has like this, um, an American school and puck wedgies are one of the houses. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it's such a great word, like we said. I mean, <laughs> if, if you're doing anything even remotely connected to this, why would you not find a way to shoehorn the word puckwudgie? Yeah, I mean, so I didn't find the puckwudgie connection on anything. I just knew about puckwudgies. And every time I've heard of the Nain Rouge, I thought like, hmm, this kind of reminds me of a puckwudgie. So Absolutely. I mean, I think it I think it fits yeah. It fits very well into the whole Milieu. How's that for a French word? Um, Yeah, milieu. (laughs) So we've mentioned in connection with the Nain Rouge, this parade, La Marche du Nain Rouge, that began in 2010. And it has a Mardi Gras-like appearance and feel. It's got floats and and revelers showing up in sometimes quite elaborate costumes. Mm -hmm. The parade is even made up of crews, that's crews with a K and an E at the end, that can register and build floats and play music and coordinate group costumes. On their website, the creators explain that that they it's it's an explicit Mardi Gras connection. It isn't just something we notice. They they do this and they they use the, the word cruise and they take this idea from Mardi Gras and take it out of that context and and put it in this parade in Detroit, which feels a little off sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um Mardi Gras is a very sort of distinct, local, deeply rooted event. With religious connections and all kinds of things. <laughs> yes. And taking bits and pieces to jazz up your thing in Detroit. Co-opting, if you will. <laughs> yes. Yes. Co-opting a bit. Yeah. So that, that felt a bit, a bit weird. But the goal of the parade is to drive the Nain Rouge out of Detroit. He's on a float, and throughout the parade, he taunts everyone he passes, and the parade ends at Detroit's Masonic Temple, and the name makes an announcement for the evil he's planning for the upcoming year. The event's website pitches him as a harbinger of doom, and people can even submit barbs they want to sling at the name, and the event coordinators will do just that. It definitely feels like this parade was created as a a feel-good event for a city that's had a lot of low lows over the years, from bankruptcy to crime to the fall of GM and the overall decline of the auto industry and the shuttering of so many businesses. The fending off and mocking of the name is sort of presented as a cathartic experience. But is that okay? There are actually a group of people, um, pro-Nain people, um, who show up to the parades and they kind of protest what's going on in in support of the Nain Rouge. So the group, led by Detroit area researcher and lecturer John Tenney, is called We Are Nain Rouge and describe themselves as a small but vocal and active group who seek to inform the community about our city's ancient protector. Like the Nain Rouge, we are here to provide understanding and guidance in order to create a better community. The organization on their website connects the Nain Rouge legend to Algonquin creation myths, particularly that of Glooskap, who created the earth and humans as well as other beings, fairies, dwarves, and so on. These were considered nature spirits that would guard and protect humans and their societies as well as the earth from Glooskap's evil brother Malsum. 
They take the position that European missionaries, in encountering the myths and mythological figures of the indigenous Michigan residents, interpreted or depicted them as demons or other varieties of evil spirits. Perhaps, they suggest, this is not a supernatural event, but, troublingly, indigenous tales reinterpreted or misinterpreted by the Europeans who displaced those indigenous communities. When seen in this light, they explain, we can understand just how horrible the idea of blaming problems on the Red Devil actually are. And the group takes particular issue with the Nain Rouge being depicted by parade organizers as the cause of troubles in the city, rather than a harbinger of them, or as a protective figure, as those indigenous nature spirits were. And the Nain always is depicted as providing warnings, which a protector would do, right? Like, this is coming. Prepare yourself. Now, I think what we like about their concerns, or or what we sympathize with, is the observation that the point of the parade, to cast out the evil Nain Rouge who torments Detroit, is not based on the actual elements of the original stories, which did not show the Nain Rouge to be the source of people's problems. At the parade, and they did this just yesterday as we're recording this, they gather, they carry signs that implore people to stop Nain shame (laughs) and tell people to not dread the red. And we heart Nain and my favorite, support your local creatures. (laughs) I I, I think that's uh, that's good because one of the things that comes through in their position is honestly that the Nain has been here longer than we have been. (laughs) And so why should he be the one to get out? What's he done wrong? And you can say, well, it's symbolic. Yes, it is. Symbols are very important Mm -hmm. and have a lot of meaning, right? It's if you're doing something symbolic that has a kind of cultural power to it. And and so just saying, ah, it's just a parade that's fun. No, it, it's saying, here's this weird little creature that's the, pro- that's the source of all of our problems. And if he leaves, things will be better. That kind of thinking mm-hmm. is an actual sort of socio-political cultural problem <laughs> that mm-hmm. we as a society continue to struggle with and have throughout uh, throughout history. Yeah. And very, I mean, they're creating a scapegoat. Yeah. Just lots of, lots of, problems, lots of issues with it all. (laughs) All right. So if we look back at this entire story, starting with uh, Hamlin's book, what what do we do with with all of this, with all of these pieces? And I think the big question that that we have is, did the Nain Rouge exist before Hamlin's book? Maybe. (laughs) that's there is no proof that that it did there i mean there's you know obviously there are legends of puck wedgies obviously there are legends of lutans but you know there is no printed written record or anything of of the nain rouge there's no other printed written record that he was at some weird dinner party that happened on the ground at the future (laughs) fort pontchartrain And everything that we find just points back to Hamlin's book. Clearly, there are things in the story that are 19th century inventions. The dinner party, like you said, Um, the fact that there is this prophecy that very sort of point by point tells exactly what's going to happen. (laughs) Oh, very interesting. And what it reminds me of, George Washington's vision at Valley Forge back in the 1800s. There was this story circulating, and it was printed in newspapers and everything, that you know George Washington had a vision. An angel came to him and said, son of the republic, look and learn several times. And, and he saw 
basically smoky visions of what was coming down the road for America that would strengthen him and, and things and good things and bad things. And I think it culminated in the Civil War was the, the last thing presented. And it was, you know, never really presented as a true story of what happened to Washington. It's sort of a, a parable sort of thing, but it gets picked up as a real thing. And I remember reading about it when I was a kid where it was extrapolated out to World War I and the Cold War, and they just kept adding visions. The prophecy part of it sort of reminded me of that, an attempt to create a new, different founding legend that is more mythic in scope. Well, and it, and it absolves blame from the French for losing right Detroit right, right? I mean right. <laughs> I mean it, it's not the fault of the French at all it's all because Cadillac hit that puck wedgie <laughs> with this cane <laughs> or not puck wedgie the name Rouge with this cane and and the lady told him right yeah he, he knew this was a bad idea and yep. his wife was telling him but no he was he was stubborn and mm-hmm. and foolish and arrogant and and violent and he did the wrong thing. Yeah, it's absolutely if there's a scapegoat to be had, it's it's Cadillac. Yeah. And and the other thing I find interesting about Hamlin's story is is the way that she spins this tale and the creation of the sorceress. Um, you know, the fortune I mean, it's the 1880s. And if you listen to our Whitewater episode, you know, we talked about spiritualism and seances and you know all these different things at the time that were becoming popular the use of Ouija boards and and all that kind of stuff so she creates the sorceress who even has the cat sitting on the shoulder who's who's telling fortunes it fits right into sort of the popular trends of 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 Hamlin's time um and I I just I always I find that very interesting especially because again this is a situation where you know because women were often seen as sort of more in touch you know with 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 the other the other side the, the whatever um you know the sorceress character could be there and she could be the one brought in as entertainment for for this dinner party so i always found throwing that in to be very very interesting because I mean I don't know enough about practices like that during you know the the 1700s new france (laughs) um but it's it's a very i mean that dinner party scene you could pick that up and plunk that down in 1880s book cadillac hotel in detroit or something like that and it would fit right in (laughs) so we've also had these mentions of later sightings 1967 during the detroit riot in the 1970s right before a snowstorm what documentation is there for these later sightings because this isn't the mists of time this is within living memory, right? Where everything gets printed. Right. Everything (laughs) gets printed. We found loads of references in books like Naldret's Forgotten Tales of Michigan's Lower Peninsula that mention the 67 riot, the 1976 encounter with the Detroit Edison lineman. But all of these sources don't go any further than that. And it's even it's all even in the passive voice. Like it is said that (laughs) the Nain Rouge was seen. It is said by whom we couldn't find anything when we looked deeper into these stories. In fact, we were so frustrated by this um, at not finding anything that I reached out to John Tenney, who probably knows more about the Nain Rouge than anybody we know and probably more than anybody out there. And he's a careful and tenacious longtime researcher of weird stuff. 
And Tenney said he was not aware of any original source for the 67 riot story. However, he did recall a contemporary news story about that 1976 pre-winter storm sighting and is searching for that reference. He knows he saw it. He's not sure where. He believes it might have been in one of those small suburban newspapers that aren't scanned and online, but rather (laughs) are in local libraries and John Tenney's files. So he's, um, he's looking for that. And if we hear anything, we will let you know. And we're not shy about accepting uh, information from listeners. Do you know who first reported the 1967 Detroit riots sighting? If so, don't be shy um, and use the active voice. Don't say, I was told. (laughs) Tell us who told you. So then what do we do with the parade? It has taken this one story and moved so far away from the original narrative that That narrative is no longer remembered. In an article in the Detroit Free Press from last week from recording day, so potentially two weeks-ish from the time that you listened um, or listening to this episode, the writer states that the name is an urban legend woven through pivotal moments in Detroit history. It is said (laughs) the Red (laughs) Demon appeared to the city's founder who suffered financial ruin soon afterward. Subsequent name sightings have preceded disasters ranging from the 1805 Detroit fire to the 1967 riot. So so in this story, there's no mention that Cadillac sort of he sealed his own fate. According to Hamlin's story, he assaulted the Nain Rouge for no reason and thus brought his own bad luck upon him. So the, the Nain Rouge wasn't just like, I think I'm going to just screw with this. Cadillac and ruin his life. No, Cadillac was a scumbag. (laughs) And he hit this poor little Nain Rouge. So a project that we found online by a Wayne State University student um, sheds a bit more light on some of the issues with the parade. Uh, It seems like it was maybe like an anthropology or archaeology student. I'm not (laughs) something. He's studying culture anyways. He or she was and created this project. And The student wrote that the event was made as a celebration of Detroit, but notes some tensions between the Detroit residents and others who come to the parade for a good time. It's sort of an idea that after decades of white flight, the student notes a feeling of gentrification with the event. So, you know, these Detroit residents head out to the event, but then it is just packed with a bunch of people from the suburbs, (laughs) he Mm -hmm. basically said, and out of town folks who are coming down for a good time. So then you're getting away from, you know, kind of even the the goals as stated by the organization to kind of breed positive goodwill amongst the residents of Detroit mm-hmm. or whatever. So there's kind of some some tension there. Furthermore, the student notes non-indigenous people dressed in indigenous inspired costumes and others dressed in colonial garb, the student describes it. And um, those folks are helping to drive out the name. So there's a lot of a lot of unpleasantness here as we begin to peel back the layers of the event, not to mention the fact that they basically just took Mardi Gras out of the South and plunked it in Detroit as the theme for the whole thing anyway. So, I mean, we've got cultural appropriation. (laughs) We have a lot of people who don't realize when you say things like, let's drive out the red devil um, and put that into a colonial context. There's a lot, a lot of meaning um, packed behind that. Yes, there is. And and the, 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 the Nain Rouge is presented during the parade. He's just, 
he's a man with like this devil mask. So we've moved from this idea of a lutan, a puck wedgie, definitely doesn't have any quills coming out of his back. No. <laughs> um, no. To to a person with a devilish looking red face being chased out of the city, taunted, having barbs, verbal barbs thrown at him. So it's not pleasant. No. <laughs> No, it's not. And it's so completely at odds with the original story that is itself not great. No, no. Hers wasn't great either. <laughs> no. and But then it's it's taken and made so different and worse. Worse. <laughs> we, we talked before recording and it's the sort of thing where the more we read about it and the more we look into it, the, the sort of more irritated we get as as historians and as citizens of the planet. Yeah, <laughs> or, or, or Michigan, or Michigan, the, the planet. Anywhere. <laughs> so when we take all of this together, the 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 origin of this Nain Rouge story as Hamlin presented, the 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 possible origins of the Nain Rouge character in in Native American lore and in European legends as well. It's a complex story, and so often I think we find these modern incarnations or adaptations uh, of these things with deep histories they're just they're hard to get right and then even as historians it's hard for us to trace things back as well because you're dealing with so many different types of 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 sources written things potentially oral things um sort of these these legends gathered together and it's been interesting researching <laughs> the the one takeaway is the 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 way that these legends are malleable these oral traditions are malleable and mm -hmm. you can make them into new things we saw that with the wendigo last time mm -hmm. maybe we need to be more thoughtful about the types of stories we make these things into and i think just being cognizant too of the type of work you're doing so we as historians when we do this work we're looking for the documentation but perhaps um you know somebody who's who's Setting the folklore, they're going to be more interested in in the oral stories. Just being clear and transparent about about what you're doing, I think, also helps. It could help people in a hundred years um, who are trying to figure out what happened and why. Hopefully, for only like ten or twelve years, there's this stupid parade in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. The Nain Rouge is written and produced by Aaron Gullius and Samantha Engel. Our music is by Raphael Crooks. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore. <laughs> <laughs>